Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Bears History by the Decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and historian Matt Winter. Matt, the baby boom is on. Father Knows Best is on TV. Welcome to the 1950s. Very exciting decade, Jeff, and I'm happy to be back and let's get this started. All right, so we have started off the previous episodes with a cocktail of the decade. This will be no different. So the 1950s tiki drinks were really starting to sweep the country. And there's a lot of different tropical drinks that go into these fun, goofy tiki mugs. But I think the most famous is probably the Mai Tai. Mm. Did a little digging. The Mai Tai was created at a bar in California called Trader Vic's. But for me, when I think of tiki drinks, I'm thinking about Hawaii. That comes to mind, definitely. Right. So I started thinking about it a little more, and I'm thinking – there are so many GIs in World War II that spent time in Hawaii, you know, especially if they mm-hmm. were in the Pacific Theater. And then I think you see tourism starting to pick up in Hawaii after the war. You got disposable incomes, got some vacations. Hawaii becomes a state by the end of the decade. And so uh, I think th- they embrace that tiki drink theme. What I really hit on was that Elvis Presley in the movie Blue Hawaii, the Mai Tai, is the featured drink. Nice. So Elvis apparently drank this, or at least uh, had one on screen. And so here's how you make it. And there's a lot of variations, but here's what I think is a a way to go. Uh, You want to take two shots of a a white rum, a clear rum, one shot of a dark rum, and then one shot of an orange liqueur. And then this is important. You need one shot of this syrup called Orgeat. O-R-G-E-A-T. It's a sweet syrup made from almonds, sugar, and either rose water or orange flower water. (laughs) And then the juice from about like a half of a lime. You want to shake that up over ice, pour it over ice, garnish with a lime wedge or a maraschino cherry or both. There's a lot of variants. You'll see stuff with made with pineapple juice, orange juice, you know, just basically any kind of tropical juice that you want to give your own flair with but the main components are those two different types of rum an orange liqueur and that syrup that syrup's really important uh, to make sure you have into a mai tai well that sounds awfully delicious jeff i i have not had something like that but with summer rapidly approaching and time on my hands for the foreseeable future i'm definitely going to check that out <laughs> so the, th- the thing i find that's really dangerous about these types of drinks is like i think they're good 
but they're so sugary and mm-hmm. rum just in general, you know, it's made from sugar, uh, sugar cane. So it's just, everything's just so sugary about it. So if you drink more than one of these, I just think you're just going to be super sick in the morning and it's not necessarily from the alcohol, although all that sugar does cover up the alcohol quite well. So kind of dangerous drink, but maybe just have one of them to check it out. And if you can find an old tiki mug, even better. I want to do a recap of the decade. I want to start with the the pretty major changes that happen in the NFL. So in the late 1940s, a rival football league is going on. We didn't talk about this last time because it wasn't really relevant to the NFL yet. But in the late 40s, the All-American Football League, AAFL, starts and has eight teams, not to be confused with the AFL. We'll get to that next episode. So those are separate leagues, Jeff. Completely separate leagues, right? So the AAFL starts off with eight teams, the New York Yankees, the Buffalo Bisons for one season, they renamed the Bills the next year, the Brooklyn Dodgers, the Miami Seahawks, (laughs) (laughs) the Cleveland Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, the LA Dons, and the Chicago Rockets. Uh, Mm, The Rockets. Doesn't doesn't sound great, Chicago Rockets. No, it doesn't, right? But the Rockets are renamed the Hornets in 1949. Not much better. Hornets. No, not much better. But, you know, it's just kind of interesting. There's some some other Chicago teams. So Miami only lasts one year. The Miami Seahawks don't really work out. And they're replaced by the Baltimore Colts. Okay, so that's important because we're going to talk about the Colts here in a minute. So the Browns are absolutely dominant in this league. It's Otto Graham, Paul Brown. If you know anything about them, they did quite well as a, as a tandem but they run roughshod over this league. They are 54-4-3 in the four years of the AAFL, and they win all four titles. Dominant. So they're absolutely dominant. It is, it's a, it's the, the dynasty of the AAFL since it only lasts four years and they win all four titles. But in late 1949, the AAFL merges with the NFL. And so before the 1950 season... The NFL adds the San Francisco 49ers, the Cleveland Browns, and the Baltimore Colts. The L.A. Dons, those uh, players merge with the Los Angeles Rams, Mm. and their ownership, I guess, probably has some kind of stake. The owner of the, the Bills actually takes a minority ownership of the Browns. So 1950 comes around, and the NFL is bigger. But the Colts only last one season, and they leave, okay? So we'll get to them in a minute, but it's just weird. Like, that franchise that comes over from the AAFL, they're gone. They're done. They're not the Colts that we know today. So the next year, the New York Yanks, they're sold, and they move to Dallas, and they become the Dallas Texans in 1952. But they're only in the the league for one year, (laughs) And then the Colts are reformed as a new franchise, new ownerships, no official ties to that AAFL team in 1953 to replace that Dallas Texans, New York Yanks team. That is the modern day Indianapolis Colts. So if you see, there's the AAFL Colts and one year of the NFL Colts, and then there's a space of a year, and then the modern day Baltimore Colts that eventually turned into Indianapolis. So that that's how they're formed. And then from 1953 through the rest of the decade, that's how it stays. There's 12 teams, two divisions of six teams each. They play 12-game schedules. The Eastern champ plays the Western champ for the NFL title. That's how it's all set up. 
So for the Bears, how they fit into this, and it's unfortunate, I think if we had to label this decade, we would just call it good, not great. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they were bad. They finished with a record of 70, 48, and 2. So they won almost 60% of their games. They won the division twice, but they did not win a championship. They In 1950, well, I guess they only won the division once. Because in 1950, they tied for the division lead. They played the Rams in a playoff game uh, to determine who would win that division. The Rams won 24-14, to and then they ended up getting beat by the Browns in that championship game. And then in 1956, the Bears won the division, but they lost 47-7 to to the Giants in the championship game. So pretty rough decade with no championships, but like overall, they were a pretty good team. In 1954, 55, 58, and 59, they finished second in their division, and one time it was just a half a game out. And so they were a good team, and in today's playoff format... They would have been a wild card team. They would have been in the playoffs. They would have had a chance to make a run, but they didn't. But at that time, you had to win your division. That's the only way to get into the championship game is to win your division. Had to win the division. It's just uh, there's just one championship game. If there was a tie, they would do a playoff for determining the division champion, and that's what happened in 1950 against the Rams. But otherwise, you had to you had to win your division to be able to play in the championship game. So uh, finishing second did you no good in this in this era. I'm surprised Hallis didn't have the rules changed right away to put the top two in the playoffs. I imagine that happened soon after that because he was probably pretty frustrated, but. It did not happen in the 50s, and the Bears played the bridesmaid quite often. So Hallis, as you mentioned, Hallis, he's the head coach from 50 to 55. He steps down. He tries to retire. He lets his old friend and assistant coach, Patty Driscoll, take over in 1956. Driscoll lasts whole two seasons, and Hallis gets the itch, comes back, takes back over in 1957 for his fourth and final 10-year stint as head coach. Interesting decade. I just find this this decade to be kind of a bummer. It kind of reminds me maybe of the 2000s where you've got a lot of good players. The teams are really good, but they just can't win a championship. They just can't get it done. So Took the um, words right out of my mouth there with the comparison to the 2000s. I remember when all that was happening, I thought, oh, we're going to be in the Super Bowl at least two or three times and probably win at least one of them, and it, it just never happened. Yeah, I think I probably owe some people some money or some some beers on some lost bets on that. But So that's kind of the NFL and Bears history for the decade. What about U.S. history? What was going on in the country? Well, it's a relatively good time, Jeff, in American history. Uh, we start off, though, with the Korean War. And we were there for three years. We're trying to stop the spread of communism in Asia. Fight the Korean War, which is often referred to as the Forgotten War. Uh, presidents during this time, you have Truman, and then you have Dwight D. Eisenhower, the great uh, war hero from World War II. He gets elected for two terms, uh, and it's a relative time of prosperity. You still have some knuckleheads, Jeff, like I'm sure you remember learning about Joseph McCarthy in U.S. history class, and he accuses all these people of being communists, ruins their careers, and then is eventually found out to be a fraud. But we're really getting into modern-day life here. We have a bunch of key civil rights moments, Jeff, in the 1954. We start off, 54, Brown versus Board of Education, which basically decides that separate but equal is not going to cut it anymore. And then a few years later, we have the Little Rock Nine. You have nine African-American kids who entered this all-white 
high school in Little Rock and they have to be escorted in by the state national guard. And it's, it's a huge moment and sandwiched in between there. You have in 1955, a young lady named Rosa Parks. She refuses to give up her seat on the bus and that leads to the Montgomery bus boycott. And so huge moments in the civil rights technology wise guy named Jonas Salk. He develops a vaccine for polio. We're going to want another vaccine to come to us real quick here, hopefully within the year. Um, Sputnik, the Russian light, gets launched in 1957, and that really kicks off the space race into high gear, which is going to last for the next 10 years plus. Um, in, in entertainment, TV, Jeff, becomes a huge thing in people's lives. Um, uh, over three quarters of American families have a TV in their home, and they watch programs like I Love Lucy. is probably the biggest show of the time. You've got other ones people have heard of, like, Leave it to Beaver, The Honeymooners. There's a lot of shows from that time people would recognize. In music, one of my favorite guys of all time, Jeff, Elvis. Elvis is probably the biggest musical star of the decade. You and my grandma, huge Elvis fans. I love Elvis. I still listen to his songs. I think he's timeless. He's the king, Jeff. Movies, you got movie stars like... The beautiful Marilyn Monroe. You have Elizabeth Taylor. You have James Dean. You got Marlon Brando. You got such movies, you know, the James Dean classic Rebel Without a Cause. You got you got Monroe in Some Like It Hot. You got Streamcart Named Desire. You've got Singing in the Rain. You've got Bridge on the River Kwai. You've got Ben Hur. You've got some of these really epic movies that these movie studios started making. Um, books, Lord of the Flies. A uh, personal favorite from mine, read it in high school, Catcher in the Rye. You got Fahrenheit 451. And, Jeff, one of my favorite book series of all time, you have The Lord of the Rings. gets released in the 1950s by J.R.R. Tolkien. Lastly, to kind of wrap it up, and again, this is a really great decade, Jeff. Uh, a lot of families only have to have usually the dad working, and wages are high enough at the time that they need to have to have a full house, and over half the workers at this time are in unions and just business is good, Jeff, and people are making a lot of money. And in, in other sports, the NBA is kicking off. And in baseball, I, I love the fact that at one point in baseball, you had three Hall of Fame center fielders in New York. You got Willie Mays, you got Mickey Mano, and you got Duke Snyder. And just a really good decade, Jeff, for the most part. So let's get into individual Bears players in this decade, Jeff, and how they did. Well, before we do that, I kind of want to ask, like, this is the decade Eisenhower decides interstate, right? Yes. Uh, so he puts that in? Yes, and that was pretty instrumental in the suburbs. People had an easy way to get into the bigger city to go to work, and then they would leave at night, go to their home in the suburbs. And uh, also it was one of the reasons for it being constructed was, you know, we're this is – Cold War era, Jeff, and we wanted a good way for troops in our country to be able to move around quickly, and that was another reason for the interstate highway system, but never obviously got really used for that. I find it just to be kind of a fascinating thing that, you know, I, I live off of Interstate 35, you know, I can hit up to Minneapolis real fast, I can get down to Kansas City pretty quick, and it goes all the way down to Dallas. And, down to Dallas. And, and it's just like, it just kind of blows my mind, but, you know, we also live on i-80 and you can yep. go coast to coast and and there's just you know obviously there's more and it, it's maintained it's gotten bigger you know the lanes have gotten wider and you know more lanes are added and 
so much of this country is built on that one decision to do that. And I just find that to be one of the most interesting pieces of uh, American history is that decision to to build that out. And try, but yeah, you mentioned try to imagine life without those huge interstates, Jeff. Like I, I just, I don't, I don't know, know how it works. I don't know. I don't know either. I don't think it's possible. I, I mean, it'd be nice to have some high-speed rail, but that's probably a subject for another <laughs> podcast. But so, yeah, you mentioned key players, and I think that this is a really fascinating time because the most of the guys from the '40s are gone. They're they're retired. They moved on. Some of them are assistant coaches, or they've moved on to other things. They're really, the only guys we mentioned last time. Bulldogs still around through 52, and then Ed Sprinkles around through 55. For the most part, we're getting new a new crop of players. You know, Hallis starts uh, stacking new players into this team in the latter part of the 40s that start to play a role in the 50s. But you've got a real new cast of characters here, and I think I think you just have to start a quarterback. We mentioned last time about the decision that Hallis made to ship off Bobby Lane and to be able to do that he was basically saying johnny lujak you're our guy so let's start with johnny lujak so he some of these these draft histories are kind of crazy and they're tough to follow but he's drafted in 1946 with the fourth overall pick but he still has to go and uh, serve serve in the military so he returns to notre dame in the for the 1947 season instead of going pro he he, you know, he's going to finish out college. So 1947, he wins the Heisman Trophy, and then he goes on and wins back-to-back national championships for Notre Dame before he joins the Bears in 1948. So Hallis, I guess, has his rights. You know, he uses that the rights in the 1946 draft, and he's able to just hold on to the rights to Johnny Lujak until he's ready to turn pro. So really looking forward, Lujak joins in 48. Lane's gone, 49, Lujak's great. He's first-team All-Pro, and in 1950, 1951, he backs it up with Pro Bowl selections. Look like he's going to be the guy. Uh, he leads the league in passing in 1949. He leads the all-quarterbacks and running scores in 1950, so he's kind of this dual-threat guy. And, oh, by the way, he's a really good kicker. <laughs> okay, So many and of these so guys he, can kick. It's unbelievable. Yeah, so he's great, right? So the the interesting thing about Lujak, though, and I think a lot of it has to do with that Notre Dame, you know, is this national program. He's really marketable. He had, like, his own radio program. He's kind of this all-American guy. And in 1951, his body's really beat up. Apparently he had potentially a contract dispute with George Hallis. His body's not feeling good. And he's like, I got other options, man. And he walks away from the game in 1951. Well, that leaves Hallis holding the bag, right? Like this, Lujak was going to be the guy through the 50s. And so he's got to turn to kind of his secondary options. And so he's got the three Bs to replace Lujak and, you know, who is supposed to replace Luckman. So the three Bs are George Blanda, Ed Brown, and Zeke Bratkowski. You know, there, Matt, there's this old saying that if you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. <laughs> what if you have three? Think, well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, Hallis must have thought, like, well, if you have two quarterbacks, you need one more, right? <laughs> and so Blanda Blanda plays until 1958. You know, he's the primary quarterback in 53 and 54, and he actually retires. And then he comes out of retirement in 59 with the Oilers and plays quarterback for them for a long time. And then he goes uh, and is mainly a kicker and sometimes backup quarterback for the Raiders. And, you know, he plays, like, 
75 seasons or some <laughs> you know, astronomical number. You know, he's in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, the, his first part of his career was spent with the Bears, and he was just one of these three quarterbacks to play. And Hallis would just kind of play him and, you know, try to ride the hot hand. Ed Brown is the primary quarterback and the leading passer from 55 through 60. And so he's kind of the main guy for most of this decade. And then Brakowski kind of that third guy. And so I, I guess the best I can say is that they ain't Luckman. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, despite putting a lot of resources into this position, Hallis uh, just simply doesn't get it right. And so this is, I think this is the reason why the 1950s Bears are good and not great is that Lou Jack doesn't stick it out and the replacement Bs just aren't good enough. And that sets off the next half century of questionable Bears quarterbacks. I think this is the start. So it's either the curse of Johnny Lou Jack or the curse of Bobby Lane, whichever you want to say. But I really do think it does kind of start here. This is the moment where it starts where you just really don't have it ever settled at quarterback. Your first guy is someone who is kind of larger than life because of his legacy, and that's Bill George. You know what, Jeff? I, I grew up, and we always heard about Buckus. Obviously never saw Buckus. Too young. Caught Singletary at the very end of his career. Was very blessed to see Brian Erlacher's whole career. That was really the first great bear I got to see their whole career from start to finish. And I would we would always hear about this Bill George guy, like Bill George was the star, like these great middle linebackers, and he was the first one. And so I had a lot of fun learning about him. 6'2", so a pretty big guy for that era. He's a second-round pick in 1951 out of Wake Forest. And initially, Jeff, uh, the story goes, and I read it in many different sources, is that think of it as like a a 5'2", he would start on the line kind of over the center, and then when the ball would be hiked, he would hit the center and then drop back into like a, what we would think of as a middle linebacker position. But one game against the Eagles, apparently, he hits the center, and they're just throwing over his head, and he can't get back in time. And so he just drops back initially, and he is the one person that gets credited a lot with being the first true middle linebacker. And it leads to eight all-pros, seven of which were with the Bears, and eight-time Pro Bowlers, and he's just supposedly this just savant on the field. He's a coach on the field, and he's just this great sideline to sideline tackler. He has 18 career interceptions, so he can drop back into coverage. Called the Bears signals for many, many years, and there's this great story I came across a couple of times about, of course, this is such a Hallis thing. Hallis puts a radio transmitter in his helmet to talk to him. <laughs> Which strikes me as odd because he was the spy anyway. I don't, I'm not sure he needed Hallis, but and but the coaches complained about it and it was ruled illegal. But I just thought that's a really fun part of the story. And he's a he's so a basically nice... so basically Hallis is like 50 years ahead of everybody because that's like now that happens. That's how you call in plays is that it's just through helmets and the radios and the helmets and there's no sideline you know, signals anymore is it's just radios. Well, absolutely. And and that's a rel- that's relatively new in the NFL within the last twenty years where it gets put in the, you know, one player on the defensive side of the ball. But yeah, it's just I I love yeah, I love that story about Hallis and and he's a he's a nineteen seventy four Hall of Famer. The Bears retire as number sixty one and I take a lot of pride in being a Bears fan because we have these four uh outstanding middle linebackers and they're they're Hall of Famers. 
And it's just a really fun part about being a Bears fan. It's a really fun part about this franchise. Yeah, it does really kind of change the narrative of what this franchise is all about, starting with Bill George is that one thing that the Bears are about are middle linebackers. And I think then you also say they're about running mm-hmm. backs, but you know, we'll, we'll get to that later. But my, my next guy is George Connor. And I think in a lot of ways, this guy might be a forgotten George because uh, there's so many great Georges in Bears history. But George Connor, he was teammates with Johnny Lujak in Notre Dame, mm. and he was the first Outland Trophy winner. So uh, given to the outstanding lineman of the year. So he won the first one of those. So that's pretty cool. He's, to me, this guy, this guy he's a Hall of Famer, known as this really clean cut, like clean player. Like everybody respected him, was really well liked. He's 6'3", 240 pounds, big and versatile. So he played both offensive and defensive line and linebacker. And he was awarded postseason honors at all three spots. You know, in the 20s and 30s, everybody's playing both ways. In the 40s, you start to see that kind of die out. In the 50s, it's pretty rare to see a guy be honored on both sides of the ball. But Connor was just that good. He was just uh, good on both sides of the ball. Born and raised in Chicago. Spent all of his post-playing days in Chicago. So this guy's just kind of a you know Chicago guy through and through. I think that's just kind of fantastic in and of itself. Hall of Fame class of 1975, despite the fact that he got hurt in 1954 and he only played for eight years. A lot of these guys played for longer to be able to build that Hall of Fame resume, but he only played eight years but was still so dominant when he was playing that he got in the Hall of Fame. Your next guy is another lineman, and that's Stan Jones. Yeah, I got to make sure I steal one lineman from you, Jeff, every round. And so (laughs) <laughs> that happened to be Stan Jones this round in. 6'1", 250, so a big dude. All-American at Maryland. A fifth-round draft pick. Uh, I think we're going to have a later in the podcast a real interesting time with best roster movie because there's a bunch of great players from this decade that are fifth round or even later. But he's a fifth-round draft pick. He starts off at tackle but eventually is moved to guard and Kind of the rest is history as far as how successful he is. He's a three-time first-team all, seven Pro Bowls in his career. And he was considered one of the best pulling guards at his time because he was pretty athletic for his size, and they would pull him out in sweeps, and he would, I assume, pancake people. And so a, a tremendous offensive lineman for the Bears. One of my favorite things about him, and I read this a couple places, is he's credited with being one of the first players in the league to focus on weightlifting to prepare for the season, which is just, I mean, that's something that we would take for granted now. I mean, any school football team lifts pretty much year-round, but the idea that that was something new at the time, that just that cracks me up. And, you know, I wonder what his teammates thought of him right away. Like, oh, yeah, Stan, you're cheating lifting those weights or something. I, I wonder <laughs> I wonder how it was accepted. but Between drags on their cigarettes. No kidding. And, exactly. <laughs> So I, I bet he got a few of the guys in the weight room with him when they saw how much it sure. helped him play. Uh, towards the end of career, actually, they switched him to defense because they needed help on a defensive line. And so he finishes out his career there. He gets inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1991. Uh, we've had a lot of great offensive linemen, Jeff, so far, and this guy is right up there with any of them, Stan Jones. Yeah, I like Stan Jones. You know, you kind of mentioned he's stealing away 
at least one lineman per episode. And I should just mention to the people listening, I, I come up with a, a group of eight and then we have a little bit of a draft between <laughs> the two of us over text message. And this next guy, I thought that I might be able to get away with not taking him first overall. And I, you know, I, I took a different guy first overall that we'll get to thinking that you would let him come back to me uh, because this guy is absolutely one of my favorite players of this era his name's harlan hill go ahead well you know i love my wide receivers and this guy 6'3, that sounds like a modern day wide receiver and you want to talk about a draft steal he's a 15th round mm-hmm. draft pick and so here's a guy that flew under the radar but he's got size he's got good speed he's got great hands and he starts off with an outstanding rookie season Jeffy has 1,100 yards catching, and he has 12 touchdowns. He's rookie of the year. And for that time, that's one of the best wide receiver seasons up until that point. Like, those weren't numbers that people typically put up. And so he's a big target. He's a big play guy. He averages over 20 yards a catch for his whole career. And uh, one of the highlights that people always mention with Harlan Hill is in the 1956 game against the Giants, he has this kind of acrobatic sideline catch. And I watched it, and I mean, it's nothing tremendous for today, but at the time, I'm sure it was kind of this uh, deep pass down the left sideline, kind of tipped to himself, catches it, goes into the end zone. And so he's kind of a a highlight player of his era. And for his career, almost 5,000 yards, 40 touchdowns. Those 40 touchdowns, still the franchise record. Uh, And so hopefully we have some guys, maybe uh, Robinson is around long enough that he can break that, but... As it stands right now, Jeff, he's the franchise leader. And later in his career, he he ruptures his Achilles. He's actually able to come back from it, which he's one of the first guys to be able to do that. But he's not the same player, and he can't put up those numbers anymore. But just a really, I'm sure, a fun guy to watch with his size and his blend of, of speed and hands. And um, just a phenomenal player to learn about and a phenomenal player to talk about, Jeff. So well, I got some more Hill Nuggets in the future, but a couple of things just to add on to what you're saying. And one is, so Kavanaugh's the the franchise leader in touchdown receptions, guy we talked about from the 40s. But he, you know, is more of just considered like an end and not really a wide receiver. And this might be the era where you start to say, okay, this is a wide receiver, mm-hmm. right? So Harlan Hill is considered more of a wide receiver, whereas Kavanaugh was that old school end kind of player, which we might consider more of a tight end kind of thing. So, so for high, for wide receivers, he he's number one in franchise history. He was drafted out of North Alabama, which is a football powerhouse. Yeah, football powerhouse. Maybe I don't know in Division Two, and so they actually have a Harlan Hill Trophy that is awarded to the most valuable player in division two. So just, you know, another guy here that like has this cool legacy of the the fact that they award a Harlan Hill trophy to the best player in that, in that division of football. So that's really cool. Uh, My next guy is Joe Fortunato and Fortunato is one of those guys that I think definitely forgotten. People might remember George Conner before Fortunato. And I think I kind of see this guy as living in the shadow of Bill George. He earns three first team all pro honors and three second team all pro honors. So he's really good. So he's awarded a lot of postseason awards and he's on the all decade team for the 1950s. Like that's a really Mm -hmm. good resume. Why isn't this guy in the hall of fame? Right. 
And I, I think, to me, he's a Hall of Fame snub. I think he's really underrated. He misses, I think, one start, maybe. But really, he started racking up those postseason honors after Bill George starts to kind of get to the end of his career. And so I think it really was a guy that lived in the shadow of the middle linebacker. So it kind of reminds me of Briggs. Briggs had a lot of Pro Bowls. And, you know, he had a fair number of postseason honors, but I don't see Briggs as getting in the Hall of Fame. Tough to see Briggs getting in the Hall of Fame. It would be amazing if he did, but I just don't think it's going to happen. And so to me, this Fortunato guy kind of reminds me of that. He hmm, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah, so so he's an interesting guy. I think you need to know about him. He's very instrumental in the 63 championship, which we'll get to next episode, but he's really good in the fifties. He's on the all decade team in the fifties. Usually that's a pretty good indication that you're going to get into the hall of fame. And he follows it up with a really good 1960s as well. So kind of crazy, but definitely a linebacker that you need to know about and a really good, really good player. Your next guy is on the other side of the ball running back. What can you tell us about him? Jeff, for my last guy, I got Rick Casares. Now uh, I don't blast learning about this guy i can't claim to have heard of him before this decade but he's he's a basically a full 6'2 225 and not that it's a great comparison but for our listeners the more i read about him and the more i watched his highlights kind of reminded me of like a mike allstott type for his era but he's he's way more fascinating than that he is a golden Gloves boxing champ at the age of 15 so you already know he's a legitimate tough dude, and he's an athlete. Right. And he stars in college, and he spent a couple years in the United States Army, and he gets drafted in the second round in 1954 by the Bears. Now, I did not know this, but apparently the Toronto Argonauts were around during this time, and they offer him $20,000 a year to play for the Toronto team. And so he's weighing that, and Hallis is coming in uh, much lower. But Hallis, Hallis yeah. Jeff... If there's anything we know about Hallis, he's not going to be denied. And so while uh, Casares is on leave from the military, he tracks him down at his mother's home in New Jersey. And he tells him, hey, just come visit Chicago. Come visit Chicago before you go back. You'll love it. And you'll surely want to sign with us. And he tells him, hey, uh, my leave is up tomorrow. I can't go. So Hallis, a guy with connections, pulls his strings, makes some calls, gets his leave extended, takes him to Chicago. He loves it. And Alice tells Casares, hey, I'm going to pay you $10,000 a year. That makes you the highest played player on the team. And so he's Casares is feeling all good about himself and all great. And as it turns out, that obviously wasn't true. How's that? Is apparently Alice told <laughs> all his great players they were the high guy on the team because no one really knows what the other people were making. And so here he is. He's this rookie. His first NFL carry. Here, here's the game. Bland does the quarterback. Uh, there's a running man, Bobby Watkins, carries it twice. Watkins is complaining to Casares, hey, I'm too tired, he's too tired. And so Casares, without telling Blanda, takes his place in the backfield. And when Blanda turns around, it's Casares, not Watkins, but gives it to Casares, and he runs 81 yards for a touchdown on his NFL carry. Wow. And yeah, in- incredible. And just the people, his teammates and people of the era just raved about this guy. Uh, his best his best year was 1956, 1,100 yards, 12 touchdowns, first team All-Pro. And that's about the only real year he put up eye-popping numbers. But this was a guy, I think, Jeff, that just is he, – he would have been a fan favorite. His teammates would have rallied to him. Mike Dicka played with him towards the end of his career. 
And Dicka just swears by this guy. He says he's the toughest guy he ever played with. And according to Dicka, he claims one time he attempted to play with a legitimately broken ankle, which I, I don't know how that's even possible. Dicka said, yeah, he, he wrapped it, he taped it, he put all this on it, and just he tried to go out there. And, you know, for guys of that era, Jeff, that's that's the badge of honor for, for how tough you can be. In. And Dicka said this guy was the toughest of them all. As you would expect, injuries start taking a toll. He's less effective towards the end of his career. And kind of a, a bad thing that happens is supposedly he starts complaining about not getting enough carries. And Hallis you know, demotes him to second string. And, and that's how he kind of finishes out his career. But uh, just kind of a, a legend, very beloved by anyone who I found that had anything to say about him. And just I'm really glad I got the chance to learn about him. Uh, that's cool. He, I, all I've known about him is just super tough guy. Had a couple of really good years at the beginning of his career, and then it's kind of like backfield by committee yeah. um, for for most of his career. But yeah, really interesting. Uh, love love to hear those tough guy stories. I would think two functioning ankles would be important as a running back. But you know, what do I know? They were they were bred differently back then, Jeff. Some of those guys really needed one. All right, so my last guy was my first round draft choice in our in our draft for this for this episode, and that's Doug Atkins. I absolutely love this guy; it's one of my favorite guys. So, one of the most dominant players of the of his entire playing career, which was a really long time. He played for seventeen seasons, wow. twelve seasons with the Bears. He was Pro Bowler eight times. He was a first team All Pro four times. Six foot eight. 260 pounds okay so really tall and you know guys weren't 300 pounds back then so 6'8 260 is a big dude he got in the hall of fame in 1982 to me i think he's the guy that's probably the best player on the 63 defense Um, Mm, but but in the 50s you've got bill george doing his greatness you know and really racking up his honors but atkins is right there with him and i think that atkins has a really good case to be called the best defensive lineman in chicago bears history i think that he's one of the best pass rushers in league history and as i was kind of digging around the nfl network had one of those you know countdown shows and they did one for pass rushers and atkins comes in at number nine and I think what's really crazy about that is that the sack is not an official stat until 1982. And mm-hmm. so it'd be really easy to just be like, well, it's Bruce Smith and it's Reggie White, you know, because these guys have the most sacks, right? But Atkins doesn't have official sacks. And so you can't compare mm. his numbers against some of those great pass rushers. But there have been players that have tried to go back and do that, Deacon Jones being. Uh, kind of the most famous guy who was trying to get retroactive stats for some of those players in those eras. And Deacon Jones even always includes Atkins as one of those guys that gets shorted because he has a ton of sacks. And so, so he starts his career in Cleveland. He, he gets here by trade. We'll talk about that in the GM portion. And then he actually goes to new Orleans to finish out his career. The last play of his career is a sack. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like super cool guy i i mean i just i love this guy it, you know would, would kind of get into beefs with hallis because he he liked to go out drinking liked to go out partying but uh hallis didn't like that but he's so good that he could get away with it and so there's a lot of fun stories about him just kind of 
you know, basically just doing what he wants because he knows he can get away with it. And he's six foot eight. My type he's of guy. Six foot eight, two sixty. That's 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 massive. That's there's not there's not there can't be that many six eight guys in the league right now, are there? Maybe tackles. Yeah, probably maybe some tackles and maybe some you know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a t- that's a tall player. I mean, six foot eight. You're going to go play that's, basketball. That's huge. Yeah, no kidding. So those are the players we think you need to know from this from this decade. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and get into our categories. All right, Matt, we're back. So let's get into the categories. So what is your favorite random stat of the decade? I found this one tough this time. So here's what I'm going with. There was a safety for the Bears in the mid to late 50s called Charlie Sumner. In 1955, he has seven picks. Okay. That's, that's pretty darn good. Yeah. In 1958, he has six picks. In 1956 and 1957, Jeff, what did he do? We don't know. I couldn't find anything. <laughs> There's like two years where he's just not there. So I, I made me very curious about this guy because he has seven picks. Uh, and then he has six, two years later, what happened in 56 and 57? Now, I hate to tell my audience, I could not find that answer, but here's some more Charlie Sumner stuff. He goes on to a long career as a defensive coordinator, and he's often credited with helping develop kind of these modern-day 3-4 defensive schemes, like very aggressive schemes. And Super Bowl 18, he's D coordinator for the Raiders. They're playing the Redskins. It's 14 to 3. The the Raiders are on top, and it's the end of the first half. The Redkins are pinned deep inside their own 20-yard line. Now, there's not much time left, but Sumner, he's done his scouting. He thinks you're gonna run this kind of screenplay. And so he subs out Matt Millen, which anytime anything bad is happening, Matt Millen, it's a win in my book, because I did not care for that. <laughs> he subs out Matt Millen with this backup linebacker and tells the backup linebacker, here's what they're going to do. And so Theismann rolls out. Yeah, sure enough, for this little scene, the linebacker just goes in, almost like Theismann's throwing it to him, for a pick six, puts the Raiders up 21-3 to at halftime at this, in, during the Super Bowl, but they're, they're going to win. And so, uh, you know, I love my coaches, and here's another former Bear player, very successful uh, he goes on to a long career as a defensive coordinator, which a lot of those great Raider players spoke very highly of him. And I, I still need to know, maybe one of our viewers will know, what happened to this guy in 56 and 57 because there's no stats for him. It doesn't even appear like he's on the team. I don't know if he got hurt. Couldn't find out in the info, but I thought that was a really fun random stat. That is that's very random. Uh, he definitely went outside the box there, but I like it. All right, so mine, mine you're going to have to kind of stick with me for a minute, right? Because okay. one of the things that I really want to do when I try to compare players from this era to modern-day players is that you have to extrapolate the stats out to a 16-game season. It's mm-hmm. not really fair. These guys played 12 games. And so to say, like, hey, yeah, he had a 1,000-yard year, but, you know, it's not like it's a 1,500-yard. Well, yeah, he only played 12 games, right? And so one of the things that I did was I took Harlan Hill's stats and I extrapolated them out to 16-game seasons. For his first three years – if you add up those first three years with those extrapolated stats, he had the equivalent of 4,057 yards and 43 touchdowns for today's game. Wow. Okay? Here's another player had 4,163 yards and 43 touchdowns in his first three years. That player's 
Randy Moss. <laughs> so just to kind of drive the point home, Randy Moss, Harlan Hill, same impact in their first three years. That blows my mind. Uh, I imagine Hill had the same impact on the league that Moss did right away. I, mean, I, I, I remember the Vikings were must-see TV. As, as much as that pains me to say, Jeff, during his rookie year, oh, absolutely. you tuned in because you knew Moss was going to probably catch a bomb from Randall Cunningham or something, and it was going to be pretty exciting. I think the only reason why Harlan Hill's not in the Hall of Fame is that he he blows out his ACL, and he just can't be the same player that he once was. He stays healthy. He's mm. in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I agree. All right, so who do you think – and I'm, this one might be interesting. I think there's an obvious answer, but who do you think is the best player of this decade? Well, I think I went with the obvious answer, and that is middle linebacker Bill George. I think he wins because he starts this legacy of these Hall of Fame middle linebackers that the Bears are going to have over the course of the next uh, 60, 70 years. Four Hall of Famers, he kicks it off. I'm going with Bill George. Yeah, I think that if Harlan Hill stays healthy, it could have been Hill. And Mm -hmm. I think that you could start to make the argument for Doug Atkins, but he's Mm -hmm. he comes over in 55. And so, you know, he's... I think it's really close. I think it's closer than most people would think, but it's really hard to not give the nod to a guy like George who just kind of changes the landscape of football. And so I think we're going to have to just stick with it there. All right, what about your favorite player in the decade? This is a tough one, Jeff, because there's there's so many great players and maybe not an obvious answer here, but I I would have to say I'm probably going to go with Bill George just because I think – since he revolutionized the position and he helps change how defensive plays, knowing that being the football fan I am now, I would have appreciated watching him back then and just watching this modern day player evolve the game during his career. So I'm going with Bill George. Yeah, it's kind of like Erlacher when he got into the Tampa 2 system and really changed mm-hmm. the middle linebacker position and made it a more modern-day position. Yeah, that's an, it's an interesting answer. I, for me, favorite player, again, there's no like wrong answer, and it really comes down to Atkins or Hill. And I, I think I always knew that Atkins was really good, and I didn't know that Harlan Hill was as good as he was until I wrote the championship belt series. And for, so for me, actually, I, I just really love learning about Harlan Hill. And I think he's my favorite player from the decade. He just, you know, for a franchise that struggles so much in the wide receiver position, it's fun to know that there was a really great wide receiver playing for this franchise at one point. Best season. Tough one. I decided on Rick Casares' 1956 campaign over 1,100 yards. 12 touchdowns, almost five yards of carry. And, again, this is the year, Jeff, where they, they lose in the championship game to the Giants. But he's a huge part of the, of the success they had that season. And I think he'll go with someone different, but that's who I'm going with. Well, I'm going to be really boring and keep answering Harlan Hill. But but 45 <laughs> catches, 1,124 yards, 12 touchdowns in 12 games for Harlan Hill's rookie year. I think that's the best season. And I'm just going to tell you my best game, which is Harlan Hill's huge game, which was seven catches, 214 yards, and four touchdowns. And uh, Hallis called it the best receiving performance he'd ever seen in his life. So that's the best game. Do you have something different? Well, no, exact same thing. And so we'll move right to best moment. The best moment I could find was 
Harlan Hill's acrobatic catch in 1956 against the Giants okay. during the regular season. It, it was made a really big deal of in the in the old time broadcast I saw, and so it's called one of the best receptions up to the point in NFL history. So I said the creation of the middle linebacker position. Okay. So to me, that has the biggest lasting legacy, and it's just something that, like you said, it it actually happened more out of frustration because they kept throwing it over his head, and so he just backed up and you know changed the way that he was playing just because he was frustrated, and then that changes the course of of football, which I think is is ridiculous. So I've got that as as my best thing that happened. All right, for the GM stuff, best roster move? Would you have fifteen round pick? Harlan Hill. That's a steal, Jeff. That's a steal at any point. <laughs> you could get that yeah. guy, a possible Hall of Fame level type player in the fifth round. No, I think that's good. There's there's a story about Hallis saying that he drafted him because he liked his name. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, for me, though, I think it's actually – so prior to the 1955 season, the Bears actually are able to acquire Doug Atkins, and they mm-hmm. all, all it costs them are a third-round and a sixth-round pick in the, in the next year's draft. And so they're able to get back this Hall of Fame defensive end who's – honestly probably the best defensive end in their franchise history for a third and a sixth round pick in the next year's draft that's pretty solid they kill it with that with that to me that's the best roster move now i know you don't like the worst roster move so i'm not even going to ask you because you you don't want to like speak ill i I understand that that is correct for me 1951 draft Bears, again, pull off one of those great draft pick trades, this time with the Colts, right? So they sent some players over to the Colts. They've got their draft pick for 1951. They're not even a franchise anymore, okay? So they've got the number two pick, and they're in the market for a quarterback, and they select Bob Williams, quarterback out of Notre Dame, does nothing in his NFL career, okay? So second overall pick, complete bust. Who did they pass? The next, the next pick, Matt. It's Y. A. Tittle. Oh man, yeah. And I got to, I got to tell you the story about Tittle because it's crazy. Because I'm like, well, Tittle's been, Tittle's been playing football, right? And you look into it a little more. Tittle's drafted in '47 by the Lions, but instead of going to the Lions, he decides to go to the Colts in the AAFL. And then Tittle comes over, plays for the Colts in the first year of the NFL. But the Colts fold in 1950, and so their players, for some reason, go back into the draft. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really understand it, but they go back into the draft. And so the on a, the very next pick, Tittle gets scooped up by San Francisco, and he goes there, and he puts on a Hall of Fame career. He ends up in the Giants, you know, for the final few years of his career. But he's <laughs> the dang it <laughs> you know like they they're they're thinking quarterback they've seen tittle they know who he is you know and and they pass on him and for this guy who doesn't do anything so god real whiff there so that that's that's my worst move of the, of the decade what about favorite what if well i had 1956 championship game the field is pretty icy pretty icy conditions the giants supposedly wear their sneakers the bears do not and the bears get walloped in that game i'm surprised by that because 20 years earlier a similar occurrence had happened with poor field conditions and i'm just i'm surprised the bears were not prepared to 
have that as an option to go to in case the footing wasn't good. They could go to something different and compete with the Giants because the Giants roll over in that game. Is this a story about the Giants going and buying out all the sneakers at the local uh, sporting goods store so that the Bears couldn't get any? Well, I'm always confused by that because it's two similar stories that happen 20 years apart about. There's one from the 30s and one from the 50s. And so I don't know enough to speak. It's a funny thing that two similar events like that happened. Yeah, footwear is more important than we give it credit for. <laughs> All right. So for me, I my favorite what if, I guess, is what if Hallis gets it right at quarterback, which is kind of the story of the mm. Bears. But mm. what if he keeps Bobby Lane? What if he drafts Y.A. Tittle? These teams are good, but they're not great. That trio of quarterbacks is not the right answer. And if they're able to get a worthy successor to Luckman or keep Lane as the successor, does that put them over the top for some trophies in the 50s? And I have to think that it would have. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And a very interesting time because, like you said, we're the bridesmaid of this decade. If a couple of those decisions go differently, are we a one-time champion, two-time champion, maybe more? Very interesting to think about. Yeah, I, so I, that that's for me is the quarterback situation. So what about the question of guy from the 50s that you would want to put on the 2006 Bears to help him win the Super Bowl? Well, I'm going with Harlan Hill, and here's why. On that 2016, the passing game isn't great. You got Moose, more of a possession guy. You got Barian, kind of a deep threat, but that's probably the most of what you're going to get out of him. And so Harlan Hill is the superstar wide receiver. Now, can he be the difference? Can he make a play or two in that game, Jeff, that maybe makes that game a little closer or changes the complexion of that game? I don't know, but I'm willing to put Harlan Hill in there, line him up opposite Moose, and just see what he can do. Uh, My answer is Doug Atkins because I think it basically gives you that Julius Peppers player Mm. that really helped kind of jolt that defense back into being a real contender a few years later. And so I think if you add Atkins to that group and you have a real pass rush to go with Erlacher and Briggs and that really nice secondary, I think that could have been enough. And, of course, he would have been a great run defender as well. So for me it was Atkins. And I'm going to give you my answer first for who I would want from – the 50s to be on the 2020 roster because that's your answer for that last question that's harlan hill because the bears absolutely as of right now need a speed wide receiver and harlan hill just has that blazing speed right he's the bullet with butterfly wings this guy give give me that guy on this 2020 roster and i think this offense can hum did you have a different answer I did. I went with Bill George simply because I think our pass rushers and our D-line are pretty solid. I want I want that guy in the middle calling everything out and making plays, Jeff. So are you replacing Roquan or are you replacing Danny Trevathan? Well, I'm replacing either of them because, Jeff, he's a Hall of Famer. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, you know I love Roquan and, and Trevathan is, is a great player too. But, Jeff, Bill George is a Hall of Famer. So he, we're going to figure out a place for him to play. But he's going to play on the 2020 team, Jeff. All right. I think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about modern Bears uh, who would have the most impact on the 1950s? Would you take Brian Erlacher, Charles Tillman, or Devin Hester back? Well, I like to play by my own rules, Jeff. And so imagine this. Linebackers, you got George and Connor. On the line, you have yeah. Atkins. And then I'm putting in Akeem Hicks on the line. Jeff, oh, who, who scores a okay. point on us, Jeff? Who gains a yard rushing 
with those four guys. No one. Hey, Akeem Hicks surprised you. <laughs> yeah, you're not even answering the question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I'm going to take Devin Hester because the you know George McAfee retires in 1950, and you don't get Sayers until the 60s, and so you really kind of are missing that return element, kind of that that uh, really explosive play element that Hester provides. And so for me, I think a guy like Hester could really have a really big impact. He's also a guy I haven't answered yet, and I, and I think that this is a really good decade for him to, to slide into. The final question, my favorite question, who won the decade? We're going to have to go with Bill George, revolutionized the game, first of the great Hall of the Linebackers, and a name that I think most Bears fans know today. So Bill George. Yeah, I think you're right. I have the same answer. You know, when you create a position that <laughs> that sticks around for a long time, I think that that definitely puts you in the running. And then, like you said, a savant and you know, a coach on the field and being such a such a heavy influence. Also known as like a really kind of a mean player. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of fun to you know, he's, he wasn't George Connor, right? He wasn't this uh, really nice guy on the field. Bill George was kind of a mean dude. So. Kind of, kind of fun to read about him, learn about him, but just everything that he accomplished uh, with all his postseason awards, Hall of Famer, inventing the position, Bill George wins the decade. That's it. That's the 1950s. So join us next time as we cover the 1960s. Don't forget to keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find me at Gridironborn. And until next time, thanks for listening and bear down. Bear down.